0: Savage Minds, I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Claire Fox, the director of the Academy of Ideas, which she established to create a public space where ideas can be contested without constraint. She convenes the yearly Battle of Ideas Festival and initiated the Debate Matters competition for six formers. She also co-founded a residential summer school, the Academy, with the aim to demonstrate university as it should be. In May 2019, she was elected as an MEP for the Northwest England Constituency of the UK in the European Parliament elections. In 2020, she was made a visiting professor in professional practice at the University of Buckingham, and in September 2020, Claire became a member of the House of Lords as Baroness Fox of Buckley. Claire is frequently invited to comment on developments in culture education, media and free speech issues on TV and radio programs in the UK, such as Newsnight and Any Questions. She has been a regular newspaper reviewer on Sky News and is a monthly columnist for MJ Municipal Journal. She was the longest standing panelist on BBC Radio 4's The Moral Maze for over 20 years until 2020. She is author of a book on free speech recently republished as I Still Find That Offensive and no strings attached why arts funding should say no to instrumentalism she has written a variety of chapters and essays for a range of publications most recently narcissism and identity in from selfie to selfie a critique of contemporary forms of alienation i welcome claire fox to savage minds i came across you on twitter i joined twitter around 2012 or started using it then and I rather liked the way you engaged with the platform and asking questions amidst what was a growing cowtowing to an orthodoxy that we were all supposed to somehow be looking over our shoulders at. Skip to your presence in Parliament recently regarding maternity leave, and you're speaking in the House of Lords. And I loved what you said. Our laws and words must never treat people as non-human things. I am not a uterus holder, nor a person with a vagina, nor a chest feeder. These are linguistic abominations. I was struck by yours and other colleagues of your statements in support of common sense, since the relative wealth of people in the House of Lords, which historically I've been critical about the House of Lords, but I was so happy. I was like, oh, here's the upside to the House of Lords. It means that people with the most secure privileges, I'm generalizing, in the highest stations are able to speak freely without fear of repercussion. Meanwhile, when I published a piece on the gender issue back in 2013, I was subject to death and rape threats. My daughter was, my editor and his daughter, leading to four years later where I was told by that same editor, we can't run any gender-critical pieces, it causes too much trouble, and then skip to recently where they're running one piece after another on the pro-trans side, even though in private the same editor said, this is insane. This is exactly what Foucault warned us about. We shouldn't be going to institutions to have ourselves rubber-stamped. So I wonder, how is it that the House of Lords was the place that had, because of class, the most common sense and undebatable position on this? The only response to that, as you know, is that The other side makes claims of, well, that means that there will be more suicides. And the same plots are trotted out where people are doing harm by not agreeing with them. Why is it that we've arrived in 2021 with a pandemic on the one side where science is being used, allegedly, to lock down and to make people safe, again, allegedly? And on the other side, you have the most anti-scientific nonsense. Men are not women. So a couple
1: of things, maybe for clarification's sake. I think one of the issues is that the attempt at, for example, passing that maternity legislation without using the word woman was almost a sleight of hand. So people didn't realize that it was happening. So in the elected parliament, in, in the commons, there were people who raised objections to that but it was almost as though if you, you know, I, I am only new to all of the issues around legislation. And if you read most legislation, the language is impenetrable and you don't often, you, you don't understand exactly why certain phrases are used, if that makes any sense. So you, you, you kind of accept that maybe there's a form of wording that you just have to accept because it's just the way the law works. And I think that that has been used by some lobbyists behind the scenes who want to, uh, were trying to use that maternity bill as a precedent setting bill, where you could have a, 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 a small, it wasn't the most important bill on maternity because it was very specifically about government ministers having maternity leave, but if they could get that through without the word woman being referred to at all, that would set a precedent for other legislation. So it was a sleight of hand that somehow didn't get opposed in the, in the main body of Parliament and um, ended up in the House of Lords. So you're absolutely right to say, how can this have happened? But in some ways it was precisely because it was done behind the back of debate, as it were. And luckily, some people recognised what was going on and we were able to put up something of a fight in the House of Lords. I think it's funny that you say, you know, the House of Lords isn't somewhere that I support. (laughs) It is a place of privilege. It's undemocratic in UK politics because nobody's elected, everyone's appointed. And the only small part of... Uh, The advantage of that is that people are less beholden to political parties because there's a a slightly more independent atmosphere. Mm. But even in the House of Lords, those people who really did not want there to be any reference to women in that maternity bill didn't want it to be a public debate. They simply wanted it to go through quietly so it would set this precedent. It's a very dishonest form of politics, by the way, and it was and so consequently, they didn't mount a defense of this piece of legislation. They simply wanted it to get nodded through. So it was possible as a consequence of that for some of us to get together and to say, you know, not on my watch and to explain what was going on. It's also worth pointing out that although there was something of a victory in this instance, the word woman still does not appear in that maternity bill. There was a compromise made where there would be references to mothers, but women still weren't mentioned. And the reason why mothers became an acceptable compromise was because in certain circles, mothers could refer to people who had transitioned and therefore it wouldn't be this great affront, if you see what I mean. But nonetheless, they didn't want, they wanted it to be persons uh, who get pregnant and mothers therefore was a victory for those of us who believe in any kind of biological science. Your, your, your point about the science issue is just spot on. You know, Everybody says, look at the science, the science on this, the science on that, apart from on the issue of women's rights. And then suddenly the science counts for nothing. And it's so galling, the double standards and the hypocrisy.
0: You refer to legislation, and I'm thinking of how the GRA, the Gender Recognition Act, went through without any consultation with women, without any oversight committee, in fact, to study what might happen if gender were to replace or be on par with sex. Was nobody thinking, like, how did that happen? And here we are years later having this debate and it strikes me as well the feminists will call this you know structural misogyny patriarchy what have you but it really does show that women are an afterthought when certain types of ideas are advanced such as gender replacing sex and this is where the rub comes in for me not just because i happen to be female a woman we can barely say that anymore and people are now saying a biological female. Well, that's what female means. So I'm, I'm a woman, but I think if I were a man, I would have the same problem because I didn't come at this from a feminist perspective. I came at this because I was in Pride in Soho one night I was pregnant with my daughter and this lesbian was telling me about what was going on with trans rights in the UK. I had just emigrated to the UK. I was a bit, well, I didn't believe her. That was my first gut instinct. I thought, oh, she's nuts. And I did research and found out, well, she was telling me the entire truth. And I wondered, as someone who came from academia, who has been guilty of teaching queer theory, how did queer theory, where at the day in 1992, it was about homosexual rights and visibility of of gay cinema, let's say, or gay performance art, how did that jump all the way to men are women? How did it jump to, by fiat, mandating the entire public mirror someone's self-perception. And it seems that we have government involved in what used to be the spaces of psychological cabinets, let's say, of going to a therapist to work out issues. Why is government being involved in confirming identity that heretofore was considered a psychological condition? And if you speak to specialists, even today, they will say the same thing.
1: So the, the problem we've got is that you've got political parties who are desperate to prove that they are modern and relevant and progressive, and it's ironic because this we're particularly in the UK talking about the Conservative Party who are in power, the huge majority. But there's always this tension for the Conservative Party that they think that people will think that they are, you know, somehow against minority rights that they don't they're not as sympathetic to fights around equality and so on and i so i think there's a, a naivety at the heart of all the political parties who were presented by those people who wanted gender recognition and self id to become mainstream who presented that as very much a continuum with the fight for equal rights with the fight for the decriminalization of homosexuality for the uh, progressive movements around uh, lesbian and gay rights, uh, around women's rights. And obviously, we also, at parallel to that, um, progressive movements have become much more preoccupied with expressing their political demands through the prism of identity. Identity politics insists that lived experience should trump all else and so therefore if you say i as a woman or i as uh, an asian man or i as a black disabled person you know whatever it is that that becomes a kind of gives you a, a, a pass uh, and, and and it kind of removes any um possibility or, or or undercuts the possibility of objective reality or evidence so in that context when a group of well-organized Activists, um, as it were, lobby politicians, they say, I, we as um, uh, trans people, in demand this in relation to our identity. There was a sort of naivety that believed, oh, this is just like, if we go along with this, you know, we're going to be on the side of the angels because we're supporting a group that I have uh, uh, until now been discriminated against. So I don't know that they understood all the implications. You know, I've spoken to people particularly in the Labour Party, who obviously historically might have been more on the side of fighting for equal rights. And they, it didn't, they, didn't, they didn't even understand that the gender recognition debate would have any impact on erasing women. And so a narrative has grown up, which is that the women who insist on saying, I am a woman, as you have just done, are somehow a generationally out of step with a new way of understanding the the, the realities around uh, oppression, and that the new oppressed group are trans people, and that our refusal to describe ourselves as cis women, or or to recognise that trans. Uh, uh, trans women are women, that whole debate, that that's because we've kind of got old fashioned backward views that haven't caught up in the modern era. So I think that what's happened is the political class have rather naively embraced this, thinking it will make them look progressive and a very well organized lobbying group with a very particular uh, set of ideas associated themselves with the, the, the lesbian and gay movement, which, you know, which is why for a long time you'd say LGBTQ, you know, LGBT, it was just added on without understanding the uh, the significance of where that would end up. And of course, most of us, myself included, and this sounds so feeble, have trans friends, right? It's not as though this is something which we are, have ever thought of in a way that we would dream of discriminating against people who choose to change their uh, 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 their identity but the idea that this would be then recognized in the law as truth is a very different question because we've seen the implications for women one of the thing is i mean the gender recognition act actually has not been passed in the uk so much as it's a uh, uh, it was fought for and lobbied for and, and you, you ask the correct question is how could this even be proposed on the statute books without a consultation with women but of course there was a consultation period they said we're going to change the law there's a public consultation and places like uh, the women's place women's place is that right um decided and rightly so well people don't even know what's in this gender recognition act. So we're gonna go and organize big public debates and talk about it throughout the country. And as soon, but before they could, as it were, have that public consultation or simultaneous to it, it became fashionable and deeply illiberal to already say that if anyone challenged the gender recognition act, that proved that they were transphobic. And as a consequence of which, Even attempts at holding public meetings to discuss it were closed down on the basis that they were motivated by bigotry, broke some rules on hate speech or what have you. So in the process of a discussion about whether gender recognition should be recognised in the law, a group of uh, women who were concerned about the implications of this were demonised in the public square. And that has been incredibly dangerous because what it's done, and you started off with your own story, um, what it's done is it's made anyone who even queries the orthodoxy around trans rights as they're presently presented by a a narrow group of activists uh, ready to be um, delegitimized as bigots who can be cancelled. And so the whole issue has also become a free speech one. And I got involved in this issue more around free speech than the actual specifics of the issue around women, because I was just looking aghast at the way that local authorities, councils, um, venues were cancelling events to discuss the Gender Recognition Act on the basis that, if you didn't agree with one side of the argument, you were to be dismissed and were, uh, as I say, uh, branded with this horrible expression, either TERFs or, or just that you were um, uh, systematically wanted to dis- um, uh, deny any rights or any equality for trans people.
0: Well, I, I wrote a lot about the parallels between the trans movement and Black Lives Matter last year, because I saw a lot of this If you question, then you are a bigot. And when the statues were being toppled, both in America and in the UK, I said, wait a second. If we're going to take down statues, this ought to be by public agreement, not by fiat, not by... I mean, Seriously, if we're going to look at every single historical figure emblazoned in an artwork or a statue, we will have no one because we can go through the list, Martin Luther King, There are stories about him and sexual improprieties, even accusations of rape. Gandhi, the same thing. Like we will have nobody on statues, which fair enough. Let's do away with all statues if that's what the public agrees to. I have a problem where it comes to the justice that is being posed by the woke because they speak in the name of everyone. So they say, who thinks justly. And then on the other hand, when you have manifestations such as the 6th January protest by people in DC, the media was uniquely focused on the Capitol break in and, and the damage done to that building and people hurt killed. Okay. But there was little to no media coverage of why the tens and tens of thousands of people were there in the first place. Most of whom were obviously peaceful. And I, I see that these narratives are being manufactured quite pointedly by the media. i give you an example. The Guardian runs one trans piece after the other. Then I did some scratching uh, into their funding because I saw under some of their pieces it was written, the Open Society Foundations made a grant to the Guardian for this piece type of thing. So I looked at it. And the Open Foundation has given the Guardian $250,000. So when you start to see these recycling narratives, because it's always about how I contemplated suicide and I wasn't accepted. And we all can have sympathy with people with all sorts of problems, including gender dysphoria. But I wonder why we have had a government that's being influenced by the very media, instead of having open examinations of what this would mean to put into law that people can change their sex because that's part of the mess that's been created in terms of prisons and sports. I'm sure you've seen what's happened in the US where now one state after the other is committing itself to protecting women's and girls' sports. But when you go to the ACLU's Twitter feed, it's trans kids are being excluded from sports. Well, no, that's not what's happening. And why the media is having a role in, again, the Guardian and the Independent, well, another state in the US has capitulated to the right wing, and again, the people fighting this, like myself, we are not right wing. The vast majority of us, in fact, are on the left. And there's a sense among many of the women I've spoken to over the years that they they say, I feel politically homeless. This left is no longer the left when I think Corbyn failed because he could not grasp that poverty, housing, food banks, food shortages were more important than someone's pronouns. Yet here we are where you have this, albeit two different countries, but you have politicians announcing their pronouns. And you have very little mention since lockdown one began last year of how people are going to pay back rent in the tune of fifteen thousand dollars in some cases, even more.
1: So a, a number of things to to um, reflect on what you said. I mean, the 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 parallel um, to Black Lives Matters is an interesting one, and, and one of the one of the parallels is exactly in relation to um, free speech that I was referring to, which is that you can be an anti-racist, um, as I am, but have qualms about the particular f- uh, form of anti-racism as expressed by some of the Black Lives Matters activists. And the statues is a good example of where I would also, you know, like you say, what are we, what are we doing here? But, but you... But criticizing Black Lives Matters immediately got you labelled as somehow dodgy on race, you know, even a racist or a white supremacist or guilty of unconscious bias. So again, there's this delegitimizing. It's not a legitimate, open debate or discussion. It's a only one version of this um, anti-racism is allowed, and the other parallel with the gender question is of mandated speech, because the the you know it's not just a free speech question of speaking freely. It's that you can only say certain things, or you're mandated to say certain things. You have to kind of repeat mantra like you know there was the 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 instance of where uh, corporations were telling their employees they had to put a black box around their their Instagram uh, to show solidarity with George Floyd and to show that they were anti racist. Or there's the taking of the knee or any of these things where, where you have to repeat something that you don't necessarily believe, right? And that is exactly the same as the debate around misgendering or the use of pronouns, you know, where you're told that regardless, you have to use the pronouns as somebody dictates that you use them. So you lose control of your own language. And if you don't repeat the way that the language is being distorted by somebody else, where well, you don't say what is the new mantra, you are written off as prejudiced, a bigot, a racist, a transphobe, or whatever it, whatever it is. And that is a very dangerous situation. In relation to the media, I mean, you mentioned the Guardian and the Independent. I mean, it's not that surprising that some, two that write-on newspapers would be on that side of the discussion. I'm not sure that I'm convinced about the Open Society funding myself. I mean, you know, I always feel very squeamish about saying that people are only saying what they're saying because of funding. Um, And to be honest with you, I'm not a great fan of open society, but I've also, um, at the Academy of Ideas, we've had some open society funding in the past. Not very much of it, I have to say. But that's not the point. And also people are always trying to say to me, oh, you're only saying that because you're funded by so-and-so. And And I I think that misses the point. I mean, people get funding from people who are going to agree with them. I mean, that's just the way of the world. I'm not that bothered about that. I think that the, I think it's more, I think it's worse than that, which is that I think that the media has, um, over recent years, become much more inclined, and people who work in the journalism have become much more inclined with being associated with a particular brand of politics and as a, and almost proclaiming their virtue through that brand of politics. And in the course of that, have um, sacrificed objectivity and have sacrificed news gathering for a kind of set of, a suite of opinions which are considered to be acceptable. And in the UK, The Guardian and The Independence are the most obvious examples. But obviously, that can happen the other way around, which is people will just say, yes, but the Daily Mail and the Telegraph are likely to be anti-trans activists. And so, you know, you kind of get this, this playing out. When you talk about Jeremy Corbyn, he, I think, is a perfect example of what I was talking about before, which was I I, I don't think Jeremy Corbyn understood the significance of, of gender identity at all. Basically, his advisor said to him, oh, this, Jeremy, this is just a bit like when we fought uh, uh, for uh, um, lesbian and gay rights in the past. You know, this is the right thing to do. And he kind of, like, I think it was kind of nodded through. You know, one of the things I really object to in all this is that, I don't think that that group of people who are fighting for gender recognition and self ID are open about their political project at all. You know, there's a huge amount that goes on behind the scenes. And I think they hang on the coattails of progressive movements of the past by saying we are just the latest iteration of it. But they aren't. And you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, whether we call it gender dysphoria or, or, or what have you, um, the, the reality is is that basically saying that the law should enable you to change your sex has major implications. Which it's only because of the gender critical feminists and because some critics have made a fuss that anyone's even thought about what it means in relation to women's sport and and um, uh, you know and prisons and all the things that you've referred to. You know Biden is a bit like. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, he's no more a gender identity. I mean, he's hardly a trans activist, Biden. But he thought that by making that law, he was going to be seen as on the side of the angels, on the side of the progressives. This was kind of a symbolic uh, breach and break with uh, Trump and Trumpism. And But what he's actually done is he sold out women. I don't even think he thought he was doing it. He didn't realise... They think they're on the side of progressives against reactionaries. And luckily, there is now a vocal, even if they are increasingly under siege, a vocal minority who are prepared to speak out and explain the implications for women uh, of what is happening.
0: Are there really a mass of people who are the minority who think that sex is immutable. My question about this is really that I think it's such a small lobby with a lot of money. And I refer to the money, maybe the Open Society Foundation, we can bracket, but there are people doing research as to the money that is funding the movement in the US. And it's remarkable to see the tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars that have been invested into lobby groups, into NGOs who act in the interest of human rights. But you can see this one after the other, such as Stonewall in the UK, but the HRC in the US, what happened last week with GLAAD, where journalists like Jesse Singal are targeted and blacklists are made. J.K. Rowling's name was on it. Now that list, it still exists, but it's only available to their subscribers, people who give them money the same way that in the UK, the capture was done institutionally by one after another company signing up to be a Stonewall partner. So I have to say there's money behind this. I could see that the creep was already happening in the mid to late 90s. And it became cemented with the recent funding that is almost entirely you look at GLADS funding, you look at their website, you look at their financial statements, almost every page, even before the numbers come out, it's trans, trans, trans. And then you see the media spotlight put upon these organizations that do consulting for even Hollywood. So we're given, I mean, it's no coincidence that we'll watch an episode of Glee and it's got a trans narrative, a trans character. Everyone has the trans character. And I'm thinking for such a tiny population, trans what used to be called transsexual, but trans people were less than a percentage point of the population. And it's practically number two on the list of news after COVID. So I see that there is a media focus on this that's exaggerant. There is a threat to women's and children's rights that is enormous, that no one wants to say, and as you rightly pointed out, this is made into those elderly women. They don't get it. They're just not up with us. And I'm thinking, wait, this isn't you know, the Jets versus the Sharks. We ought to be able to talk about reality. And it would be absurd for the Labour Party to say, you need housing, just identify as wealthy, you'll be fine. Or in the same way you, you mentioned the reference to our being now cis, how on earth are we supposed to speak? If we can't speak, we can't say women, and we have to use the categories that this very tiny lobby is imposing upon us. And then takes cis further, because my whole argument about cis is that the only people who are cis are the trans people themselves, because they are the ones that claim to have a gender identity They're the ones that claim to need to realign it. And they are the ones that take measures to do so. I, on the other hand, and most women I speak to, we don't have an identity. Like I don't run around saying I have an inherent identity to wear Laura Ashley floral prints. I just don't. And if I'm making a cake or if I'm changing the oil in my car, I am neither less or more a woman. So I think that we are collapsing all kinds of cliches about well, gender is cliche. So we're taking the cliches that are gender, throwing them up for grabs. And it seems that there's an enormous number of primarily white men who like to opt out of their structural patriarchy by going there, as the feminists might say. And so they can say, well, I'm not guilty of that. So when I joined Reclaim the Streets groups recently on Facebook and have been almost kicked out of one of them for saying that men are not women, How are women supposed to speak about their safety on the streets after the Everard murder if women are not allowed to say women? If women must say that a man in a Laurel Ashley print is a woman in a dress, not a man in a dress. And I think the language is very important here. And it almost seems as if the trans lobby was orchestrated by a very clever PR firm that said, OK, let's get women to do our bidding for us because as you'll notice on Twitter, many of the people pushing this agenda are younger women. And there's a kind of will to belong to this community of the oppressed where subjectivity today seems to be formulated not around class issues as it once was on the left, it's around what used to be right-leaning issues of hyper-individualization, me, myself and I, and the will to think of individual value, not collective good. I think that there is a shift happening here between the left and the right on class issues, where during lockdown, it was the right, and it has been the right in many countries, raising the issues of poverty, access to mental health care, and of course, financing one's life because working class people can't fix a carburetor online.
1: So um, again, pulling apart a number of things. I mean, I don't profess to understand and haven't done the research as you have done and others have done on the capture, but absolutely it is true that a, that's why I've talked about the behind the scenes nature of what happened in parliament. You know, the the Stonewall champion scheme is a perfect example. If you were gonna do a case study on uh, institutional capture, because all of these um, companies, and by the way, we, you, you use the examples with Black Lives Matter and there's a parallel here. All of these big corporates, all of these, uh, you know, fusty, dusty old civil service, you know, the home office civil servants, the uh, all these people who are kind of trying to look like they're relevant to keep up. They get approached by Stonewall and say, why don't you become a Stonewall champion? And Stonewall, historically, it's something we do associate with, you know, having fought the good fight, fought for equality. And people think, oh great, we want that Stonewall champion badge on our our homepage. That will mean that we you know, we can recruit more progressive young people who don't necessarily want to come and work for an accountancy firm, or it means that our customers will sort of see us as on the right side, on the side of the angels. And um, so it's a great badge for us to use. And of course, you sign up for your Stonewalls champion, and a lot of them have done exactly the same, by the way, with Black Lives Matters, you know, ma- corporations giving millions of pounds to Black Lives Matters so that they can prove they're anti-racist. But, of course, it's not just getting that Stonewall champion on your website. It then becomes a whole, well, now you have to agree to this and this is the wording you need to use. And have you got some Stonewall champions in your organisation who you can go around and ensure that nobody's misgendering people or that, that we, you're using the appropriate language? And then they offer to rewrite all of the uh, codes of conduct in the company and so on and so forth. I mean, it's been an incredible and march through the institutions but not done in plain sight in many ways you know done as it were behind the scenes and the implications of that are now coming to roost and the point that we started with about parliament is that stonewalling of parliament has been going on for some years you know a small minority of activists have basically taken over different aspects of parliament like you know, the, the reason why that maternity bill turned up with no mention of any female mention is because the whole drafting of legislation committees behind the scenes are all stonewall enthusiasts who've gone along with this idea that we have to linguistically uh, change everything in order to reflect this new reality of trends identity. And one of the difficulties is that it, by delegitimizing uh, any opposition to gender identity and calling people bigots is, you know, J.K. Rowling might survive the absolute pounding she's had in the public sphere, the bullying, the vile attacks on her, because she's a very uh, established and rich uh, uh, author. She she can survive that. But I can tell you now, for most people who might agree that that that, uh, denying sex uh, is uh, ridiculous and to go along with trans orthodoxy is dangerous and we haven't even begun to talk about uh, young people and children and what's happening in schools but but they would be frightened to do that in case they then become labeled as a bigot so if you're in a normal workplace and you have some qualms about this but your company and the bosses are all signed up to the Stonewall uh, Charter, or you know, we've got what have you? You you think twice, and even when it came to the House of Lords that maternity bill, I thought, oh no, now I've got to one of the first things I've got to do as a member of the house of Lords is to get embroiled in this row. And I knew what it would mean for me. I knew I would become a hate figure and I didn't want to do it. You know, I'm not, I, I you know, I thought, Oh no, I'm going to get into, you know, keep your head down. It's the instinct. Cause you know how vicious it is out there. So there's all that going on oh, on the, sorry, I'm, I'm jumping around, but, but you said such interesting things on, one of the problems I think is that over recent one of the reasons why feminism were not alert to the adding of the T is because feminism itself, I feel, and this is my critique of uh, contemporary feminism or co- feminism over the last you know couple of decades, has too readily focused on women as victims and has bought into a lot of the identity stuff. So the victim narrative of know we are under. you know we are particularly going to be uh, you know that victimology um has been wholesale adopted by the trans identity activists and as it were feminists didn't recognize what was happening the second thing is is that contemporary victim feminism that emphasizes identity i think has in some instances tried to suggest that women, they've tried to suggest that women's special role in society, uh, they've done it through identity. So if I can explain, you know, a lot of feminists that I've argued with over the last uh, uh, decade or so would say, well, if we had more women in parliament, there would be more, you know, there would be less acrimony and more peaceful dialogue. As though women are somehow less likely to argue. That sort of, um, you know, women are. We, we should have more women in the boardroom because then we won't have as much hierarchy in in, in business. We should. Women have got special attributes like they care more. They're more. Uh, and 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 the re- the reason I emphasise that is because it somehow uh, associates being a woman with a set of identity attributes. Which means that that kind of notion of well, I'm having a feminine moment that some trans person might say that means I'm a woman uh, became again harder to spot because rather than being a, wo- a, a, a being a woman either being a biological reality or a matter of political oppression, it too got had become bound up with a set of alternative identities and. Uh, psychological attributes and I think that feminism in some ways contributed to that moment and your point then about finally about class is that politics has been dragged away from that more materialistic understanding of why people are you know um uh, how they suffer from into a kind of psychological suffering so um you know People will say, well, you know, I'm I'm harmed by um, sadly, a lot of feminists have been at the forefront of closing down free speech, saying that speech is psychologically harmful. You know, I'm suffering as a consequence of that. And uh, the white supremacy uh, argument or the, the that we hear around Black Lives Matters, which is that, that the white hierarchy, the intersectionality, which says all white people are oppressors, even a white homeless person is going to be, Uh, uh, in a better position than a a black person who's got more money. All of the acceptance of that identity politics by radicals over the last decade has led them to be ill-equipped in some ways to deal with the arguments put forward by uh, those who argue for trans identity.
0: You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. I go to the recent incidents in the UK between the Batley Grammar School in West Yorkshire, which has touched the nerves of many on the left. In addition to yesterday's government's highly anticipated race report commissioned in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests, which has rejected the suggestions that Britain is still an institutionally racist country. So I have to wonder, is there little room for nuance in either discussion as if a throwback to the very divisions that the left was supposed to be fighting? On the one hand, we want to say, this is verboten. We can no longer talk about Prophet Muhammad, we can't refer to Charlie Ebdo, goodness knows anymore. And on the other hand, the government report has picked the nerves of the Guardian that wrote the very curt editorial, which calls this report a missed opportunity. And they... They stated born out of a need to say or do something, anything to respond to the Black Lives Matter protests last year, an explosion of pent up frustration towards the racial injustices that still permeate British society. It has ended up sotto voce concluding that it is white working class individuals as much as any ones that are being undervalued and blighted by inequalities. The whole BLM phenomenon we are invited to believe was based on a misreading of survey statistics. It is absurd. That's the Guardian saying essentially that class doesn't matter. Uh, am I on Mars?
1: So I mean, the it's fascinating. Um, following on from what we've been discussing to consider the reaction to the, 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 the Race Commission report, um, which, which came out yesterday, that you've mentioned, headed up by Tony Sewell. Um, the reaction has been extraordinarily vicious um, and dismissive um, from a whole range of activists who describe it as, with no irony, a whitewash accuse the the predominantly black writers of the report of being Uncle Tom's, you know, some of them using quite openly racist uh, language to talk about them, um, coconuts and so on. I've seen some really horrible things said, but one of the counters to the report, which, you know, is not without flaws, the report, but it does try and approach the issue of, Systematic, uh, systemic, and systematic racism in the UK uh, through uh, looking at the evidence and digging beneath it. So not just taking the the statistics at face value. Uh, says, for example, oh, you know, why is it that so many young black uh, 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 men who end up in jail have longer prison sentences than than than? Their white counterparts, and rather than just saying there is racism because this number end up with longer sentences, it asks why they've got longer sentences, and it reveals that um, uh, it seems that um, the 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 white offenders uh, plead um, um, guilty and get a less sentence, and some of the the young black men, uh, uh, predominantly men are pleading uh, not guilty and therefore, you know, they're gonna end up with a longer sentence, all of those kind of things. So it it tries to be more complicated. And you're right that it also understands something about the class nature or the complexity of why people end up having disparities in their life. And there are such things um, anyone should be able to recognize, but as you've noted very eloquently, don't any longer recognize that there are all sorts of factors from class um, uh, and economic, uh, uh, you know, penury that are to do with different uh, relationships than those explainable through identity politics. But the way that this report has been attacked is through lived experience. And this is where I get onto the weakness of the left, identity left, and where I, you know, and sadly that that includes quite a number of Uh, people who've been involved in feminist politics, who basically say, my lived experience should trump all else. You know, I don't recognise this report. My lived experience is different. And by putting... uh, And lived experience suggests that, you know, if I, as a woman, have a different experience of reality than that described in your report, I should be the one who defines my own oppression, my own victimhood, my own... I get to say what uh, what, the, what the reality is. And that of course makes any objective um, use of evidence, it makes anything like uh, uh, analysis completely redundant because you simply assert your identity as the Trump card. And that means that it doesn't matter whether the Tony soul report is packed with the most incredibly insightful, and it is, debunking of some sort of uh you know statistical anomalies it, it really goes deep into some of those questions not all of it it's not without flaws I have to say um that the that the, the response will be well I refuse to believe it because it counters my lived experience and guess what as we've been talking about trans identity the whole of the uh the the power of Uh, Self-identification is lived experience. It doesn't matter whether you think or I think that that person is uh, a a man with gender dysphoria and, and shouldn't be. Uh, uh, involved in a women's prison shouldn't be involved in women's sports. It doesn't matter wh- whether there's no objective basis of calling that person a woman. If that person says my lived experience is that I am a woman, even if I've only decided I'm a woman, you know, last week, we are not allowed to criticise that because that would then be an affront to their lived experience. So I think it's incredibly dangerous to any kind of a rational analysis of what's happening in society if such, as you called it, uh, um, uh, uh, hyper-individualistic ways of understanding the world are allowed to prevail. But the irony then is that even though it's individuals' lived experience, those people with the voice who say, my individual lived experience should be the one that counts, actually end up then speaking on behalf of everyone else so it ends up being that you say um as I heard last night on 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 all of the tv reports on this on this race uh, report race commission report people would say this contradicts the lived experience of black people black people think this and the truth of the matter was was that the report has been written by black people But those people don't count. So they speak on behalf of all black people. They uh, they use identity to say, I on behalf of all um, uh, people of of colour, but except the ones who don't agree with me. And they are obviously sellouts. You know, so we're ignoring those. So the trans activists do exactly the same, which is when I point out that there are people who transition to disagree with trans activism, they are considered not to be properly trans. You know, they are just completely disregarded uh, uh, and ignored. And then, just uh, just to conclude, um, um, to go to that that uh, situation in, in with the school in Yorkshire in Batley, with the um, the you know the incredible. I'm so furious about this. You know that a teacher in uh, the UK has had to go into hiding for doing his job of teaching in a religious education class but because his job entailed doing something which local activists have decided um is offensive and that that you know we've got a situation whereby anyone who supports the teacher as against to the activists and their lived experience in this instance that they find it offensive to show any images of the prophet muhammad They speak on behalf of all Muslims, even though in fact not all Muslims agree with them. And anyone who sides with the teacher and says this is an egregious attack on academic freedom, free speech, and only a year after the beheading of a teacher in Paris for exactly the same crime in inverted commas, anyone who says that is accused of Islamophobia. And there's been a sort of chilling silence of people unapologetically supporting that teacher from the political elite because they're so frightened that they will be given the bigot tag, that they've kind of been mealy-mouthed in supporting um, what is in- incredibly important that we do support, which is not let the, the the small mob outside, a small minority have a kind of heckler's veto over everything that happens in the school. A head teacher who has so spineless that he's suspended the teacher on the on the demand of activists um, should be the person who we're critical of, not the teacher for doing his job.
0: Absolutely. And we've seen a lot of infiltration of schools in the UK with the gender-bred identity person and various lobbies that have been able to successfully put into curricula transgender identity, which has captured children. So now we have many situations of parents not even knowing that their child goes to school and quote unquote identifies as the opposite sex and you know end quote it's it's pernicious to me that public sectors like public education should be prey to activists and how they got in the door how they got the gingerbread person and adopting By schools of this ideology without any open discussion about, again, what this means for girls' safety, where failed experiments with co-ed toilets were put through. No discussion. It's almost as if girls were an afterthought to the needs of parents with special children. How did this come to be?
1: Let me present you with my dilemma. I've just said that you know activists outside the classroom demanding um, that you shouldn't show a picture of Mohammed. You know how can that happen? You know what right have they got to say what goes in the curriculum? Um, some of them are parents, not not all of them. Um, but I was more sympathetic to similar groups of parents in Birmingham who were objecting to the teaching of gender identity and certain aspects. Of sex education, um, which was a way of talking about gender identity in schools, and so I was more sympathetic to them. So maybe I'm a hypocrite. Um, you know, am I am I picking and choosing what which things I think the curriculum should contain? Because you just rightly pointed out, and I'm very very nervous of this, that one of the things that has happened in schools is that there has been a real capture of the issue of the discussion around sex and gender by a particular brand of activists. And I wrote some years ago um, for the Times Education Supplement about how in English private schools, the fee paying schools, there was just a kind of rash of, you know, there was just all of these uh, uh, very privileged schools were inviting trans activists in to speak to sixth formers and the kind of message was you know you no matter what teachers tell you you be who you think you are you, you know you are you identify as you will and you know you could see the kind of slow creep of a particular ideology embracing schools so one of the problems is that the school curriculum um, has been for some time uh a political plaything. I mean, the uh, the irony of what's happened in Batley about the, the, it seems to me to be entirely appropriate and within the remit of religious education that you would teach religious tolerance and free speech in relation to religion, which is what that teacher was doing. But there's whole swathes of the curriculum under the heading of, of, of PHE, I think, uh, which is uh, personal and health education and sex and relationship education that's grown. Now, you know, I I think that sex education seems appropriate, that you would teach people the biological reality of uh, sex. And I mean, uh, uh, not uh, biological sex, but that you would understand something about reproduction, and so on and so forth. But that has grown into a kind of much more intrusive imposition of state norms around relationships than I feel comfortable with. And I do think that parents can be rightly concerned that through education there's not just they're not just having their kids educated in knowledge terms but they are there's be it's become a place where activists see that they can model uh, politically what young people think a- another example is uh, in relation to environmentalism you know the the Regardless of what you think about climate uh, change or you know climate science and all that, forget what our polit- political views are on this. I was kind of tracking how you know quite a lot of projects in schools would be saying things to young people, and and, and I've heard government ministers. Uh, or, or, and uh, uh, politicians are on, on on record saying this, which is, well, you know, their parents won't change, but if we can just change young people's minds, that can get to the parents. So you've got kids who go home and shout at their mums and dads for driving too much or leaving the lights on, preaching a kind of eco-orthodoxy. Uh, 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 and you can see that, and we, we've had the warnings from Orwell in the past or the Cultural Revolution in real life in China, that the use of children to uh, socialize adults to intimidate adults has a rather uh, 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 has a history that is would make you pause and so i do think that gender identity activists have turned to schools as a place where they can capture just like we've said that they captured the corporates they've they've captured swathes of the curriculum which i feel very um, I'm, well, not just ambivalent about, I mean, which I'm horrified about um, because young people in particular, when it, it means one thing, me having reservations about them becoming eco-warriors or getting irritated about a politicised agenda around uh, uh, um, critical race theory or unconscious bias in schools, I, I disagree with, with that happening as well. But when gender identity becomes part of the norm of school, uh, ideology this has major implications because young people can be encouraged to do something very dramatic and drastic which is to misread their uh angst ridden understanding of themselves the usual teenage uncertainty about who we are the uh, experimentation with um identity the sometimes trying to work out whether you're a, a tomboy or whether you're Uh, same-sex attracted to women or any of these different things can now be interpreted by third parties as you know you should change your gender and the next minute they're on puberty blockers so this has got a much more serious implication
0: speaking to your first point i don't think you're being hypocritical and here's why the parents who were protesting the teaching of transgender theology amongst other issues we were fighting back against a lobby that had already permeated their school system. And I think when you have embedded NGOs like mermaids, it's the only thing you can do is to fight back in that way. Uh, secondly, I would question why these issues are not brought to what you have in the United States, which is like a parent-teacher association where this is open and discussed. Thirdly, in terms of sex education, That too should be, at what age should this be discussed? And why are schools teaching Peter Pan science? Sex is not mutable. I can say that until I die. That should probably be my tombstone. I have no words for this battle of science right now because the hypocrisy is neck deep and you have people on the left advocating for the most regressive even traditionally conservative notions of gender. And it's the conservatives who have the more progressive views of gender. And I'm like, am I in a time machine? Am I in a Doctor Who episode? Because we're seeing people fighting back against what have already been very embedded institutions, public school systems. So you have these kids who are now being told that they can't identify as anything. There's very little space for parents, especially in places like Canada with that one father in prison up for trial in 10 days time, who is in prison because he revealed his name because the judge said you cannot speak about this with the press. He went and did a virtual interview on this subject and he got himself arrested because he is fighting back against the forcing of hormone blockers upon his daughter the cross-sex hormone treatments that are rampant in Canada for very young kids. And as the Kira Bell case in the UK shows, kids cannot consent. I would even argue that 20-year-olds cannot consent because when we were 20, all of us have done incredibly stupid things. This is not a tattoo. This is not a lip piercing. These have irrevocable damages that they will inflict on the body, from hormone blockers to cross-sex hormones, both of them and I'm at a loss as to how the left got on board with what many are calling child abuse. In the same hand, in the UK, if a woman returns from Somalia having had a female genital mutilation done to her daughter, she would be put before the courts. Meanwhile, you have people that have done this in the UK, one ahead of a major child transgender organization, who did exactly that with her son, bringing him to both the US and to Thailand for various interventions. And that has never been investigated. So we have this lobby that is dealing blow after blow through threats of suicide, through the forcing of the public to concede someone's identity, where for the first time in medical history, the cure isn't just to have that person seeking out treatment with a psychiatrist and a medical doctor, but all of society must mirror that person's self-image. And I think we're really at a moment historically where the left has lost its mind if it doesn't start to get into step with what are basic human rights abuses here of children. And I'm not seeing the left addressing this at all. The Green Party, the Labour Party, Party—I mean the Amy Chandler incidents that have gone on and on. Three years later, how is it that this is being tolerated?
1: You're... Your exasperation is well placed. And the reality is, is that we're seeing not less of an adherence to this, but more of an adherence to it. I mean, the Green Party have doubled down the Liberal Democrat Party or anything but Liberal or Democratic on this issue. They have um, made it a badge of honor to um, constantly reassert their commitment to, um uh gender identity and you, you know you you it, you know i i hear it in your voice when you say you know sex is not mutable i'll say that it'll be on your tombstone you say but you know it feels that you know i and you you started off this interview quoting me in the house of lords on the maternity bill i mean it feels sort of like slightly gauche to say things like i am a woman a biological woman i'm not a cis woman i'm not a uterus you know you say these things you think What world am I living in that I have to proclaim this? This is ridiculous. You know, it's embarrassing because it shouldn't be a matter of contention. It isn't a matter of contention. And, you know, that phrase gaslighting, you start to feel, um, you know, am I going mad? You know, I mean, I'm just saying something straightforward. But there um, there is this real problem in progressive circles and on the left, which is they bought into this Lock, stock, and barrel. I mean, I'm really relieved that there is at least now a more visible, vocal group of radical um, voices a- a- around feminism, even if I've had my disagreements with some of them over the years. Who, you know, it's not just Julie Bindel, you know, it's there's a more, vo- you know, who's, who's kind of been going on for some time, but there's more academics who are breaking loose and saying well it doesn't matter whether we end up getting called bigots we're going to speak out anyway there's more organizations and that's begins to give me a sense that what i think is a silent majority and i know that phrase is is, is you know packed with resonance and memes and tropes and all the rest of it. but there's definitely a lot of people who are frightened to speak about it but really are not don't feel comfortable with this uh, the way the left has gone on this but I keep going back to this problem of identity politics because if again you can you know we've got what the left needs to do is to critique or the the left that are worried about gender identity have got to be bolder in criticizing identity politics in general and the the lived experience issues in general they've got to um, in the way that you described how you know they can't just kind of go along with um um when when that brutal murder of Sarah Everard happened they they then can't say you know all women are going to be subjected to you know the the generalizations like that the the way that identity politics works where through one incident you proclaim on behalf of all women in that instance is much more playing identity politics I think there's got to be a much uh, stronger critique of identity politics coming from those people who are gender critical uh, uh, on the left, in my in my opinion. Um, what one thing that you, you just in terms of what's happening with young people? I mean, it really is an abomination. It seems to me that we would, as a society, feel no qualms about encouraging young people who are already having to deal with the complexities of growing up which god knows is difficult enough to confuse them further with um the gender identity theories and it is it seems to me unforgivable that the medical interventions would be seen to be more progressive than psychological interventions that they replace. so you know, if you have gender dysphoria, if you feel incredibly unhappy in the physical body that you have, I'm all for you going and having additional support, counselling, you know, talking it through, working it through, and maybe many years later, if you can't resolve it, and you're going to be utterly miserable, this might therefore require and you might opt for some uh, medical intervention to deal with that dysphoric feeling. But to, as a first resort, be happy to say to a 13 year old, if not younger, and um, oh, well, we're happy to sign you up so that we will have complete intervention medically in your body so it will completely change um, and irreversibly with God knows what the side effects are. I mean uh you know we are prepared to encourage you to in uh, uh, to consider um you know physical butchering of your own most intimate body parts um you know this is an incredible glib uh, i mean the glibness in the fact that that is happening that teachers that head teachers that educators, would think it was OK to even open that door and to encourage opening that door to young people. I think it needs to be spoken about a lot more. And, you know, the term child abuse is difficult because God knows it's used all over the place uh, and for all sorts of reasons. And um, But I do think that drawing attention to this issue is, you know, we, we are all on a bound to do it and schools should not be the vehicles through which this is... Uh, you know becomes officially sanctioned which is more or less what is happening by the way and therefore I, I do agree with those those parents or activists objecting to that capture in schools I was just drawing out the irony of um, a, a similar protest or could look similar protest but one of the reasons why we're nervous again about this uh, objecting is, is a lot of teachers just think that oh well you know it's child abuse if we deny people the right to express themselves and this is again back to this uh, lived reality if a 11 year old says that they think that 11 year old boy says they think they are a girl or a 13 year old girl says they think they are a boy that's their lived experience that's their identity what can you do and if you've already adopted that uh, identity politics way of looking at the world, you've got nowhere to go.
0: This is where the lived experience of many, in response to yesterday's report from the government, collides with what are more, let's say, objective renderings of the present situation. And I'm thinking about the recent departure from the Society of Editors, by Eleanor Mills, who resigned in protest at the body's handling of a row around bigotry in the media condemning structural racism. And I'm struck by the divide simply because we know that structural racism is a term that people like John McWhorter have criticized, saying, what does that mean? What does structural racism mean? Show me it. I'm struck by this also because we know that racist acts occur. We know that sexist acts occur and homophobic acts occur. But there's a stretch between an incident and this being a general truth of the everyday, that racism is infrequent in the UK. And when does it occur might be better questions to ask instead of condemning outright, as is happening in the New York school system where kids are now being educated, to learn that if they are white, they are guilty as if original sin. So I've lived in the UK and I cannot claim that there is structural racism, although there are racist acts, but the press is making this into a megaphone situation where every single act is women are murdered, women can't walk out at night, blacks are killed, the police are dangerous. Might it be that there's a failure in terms of Eleanor Mills' criticism about the week that her organization studied all newspapers and that there was not a single cover story by a black reporter. So might it be that the failure to not have run front page stories by black journalists, that this is not framed properly as a critique or that the left wants to recycle the narrative of racism since again, it has long ago abandoned class issues where yesterday's report has resulted in people who've written that report being called coconuts, might there be a dissonance between the issues of poor blacks in Britain and poor whites in Britain and their lack of access to the very megaphones that are allowing for us to understand that maybe the issues are more economic and not at all about race?
1: Yeah, I mean, the thing is we don't, the, the reason why the report yesterday was interesting was because in some instances we don't quite understand and the data doesn't entirely always answer the question what is going on but to say that it's just um racism is obviously ludicrous so the report makes the point that there's a peculiarity of uh, uh people from african you know countries living in the uk i mean one of the things about the uk that's great is because there's people from all over the world live here so there's all sorts of ethnicities um, in quite a small country <coughs> sorry and as you point out you know this isn't the us it has got a different historical um uh, uh, version of racism but you know when i was um politically active in the 80s around anti-racism there were in Coventry people were being burnt out of their homes because they were Asian and there were people you know there were gangs of skinheads who call themselves racist and beat people up right and you know there was open racist discussion about uh, people uh, through the colour of their skin whatever ethnicity they were from if they weren't white they were seen as inferior by you know substantial minority people that was kind of part of the culture it's not that you know, long ago, but it's not like that now. And that doesn't mean there is no racism. Uh, you know, there's. I think Islamophobia is a useless phrase often used to close down any criticism of Islam. But it's also the case that I do know that some people are discriminated against or treated um, as though they would be terrorists or some because they are Muslim, which is a ridiculous thing. You know, it's a bigotry that isn't unhelpful. Uh, we get a situation where black African uh, people in, in education in the UK are doing very well, but black Caribbean kids aren't, right? So that, that would not imply racism, would it? You know, the idea that you kind of go, oh, well, I will make a distinction between that black person and that black person, discriminate against them and reward the other. So what is going on there is not straightforward. Why is it that Indian students or Chinese students are doing particularly well in British education? You at least have to query whether you can just say ah it's all racism that a particular ethnic groups are doing very badly if they're at the bottom of uh, of uh, the pile and therefore economics has to come into it but there will be other factors and that's what the report tries to look at at least it attempts to be um to dig beneath the headlines and be a bit more complicated and i think the point about eleanor mills resignation but also there's been a big Ferrari around the Society of Editors where the chair had to was forced out by a fellow journalist because he tried to suggest that the tabloid newspapers were not racist when it came to Meghan Markle and the whole controversy around royal family which has gone on in the UK and the US after the Oprah Winfrey interview. The thing that really struck me about um, uh, Eleanor Mills' point, you know, why is there not a front page by a a black leader writer? Well, well, which black writer does she mean? I mean, if Tony Saul, who is the author of that race commission report, was, um, you know, asked to guest edit a a newspaper a day, would he count or is he the wrong kind of black, right? Are you meant to assume that we are never to criticise certain people because they're black, as in Meghan Markle. Is it the case that if you criticise her and she's black, that therefore that criticism is in- inevitably racist? I mean, these things are far more complicated than is implied. And one of the things I objected about the driving out of the um, the Society of Editors uh, chairperson recently was that there's a kind of um, a bullying mentality in a lot of companies now, which is don't publish this author, they're racist, or don't publish this author because they're transphobic or that, you know, people are labeled uh, employees get together and say, we want them out. I mean, it's like, it's, it, it, at some point you mentioned blacklisting and there are lists. And this is a kind of McCarthyite atmosphere And, of course, the consequence of that is that what happens is people don't speak at all. It has a chilling impact. Eventually, you just think... I'm not going to talk about the race issue in case anyone thinks I'm racist. You know, I'm never going to say what I feel squeamish about signing up as a Stonewall champion and some of the gender stuff that's going on at work because I don't want anyone to think I'm a turf or a bigot. Um, I think I'll avoid having a conversation about what I think about Batley School because I definitely don't want anyone to think I'm Islamophobic. So you effectively are putting a gag on open discussion in society. And once that happens... It means that the capture by the lobbyists can go on, you know, untrammeled, unabated because nobody's, everyone's frightened to say, stop, let's at least think about it. Can we have a conversation, please?
0: Certainly the Oprah Winfrey interview of, of Meghan Markle and Prince Harry uh, was hugely ROFL to me because you saw so many walls coming up from various sides and, I was like, wait, we're watching three of the wealthiest people or most most privileged people because Markle probably is not one of the wealthiest in the world talking about, well, what many might call trivial matters. And there's a meme going around that shows Markle, Harry, and Oprah with bubbles coming out of their mouths about how money's not important. No, money's not really secondary. And then you've got three people underneath, all workers, saying... Uh, well, expletives, you know, basically there's a disconnect between what is being called racial oppression and the lack of being able to see economic impoverishment, inequality. So that entire interview was distorted from the get-go because we're watching very privileged people, two women who are Black, talk about one sad life, quote-unquote sad life, and there's little to be sympathetic towards. I'm not a royalist, I'm not an anti royalist, I'm just looking at this from another planet. It was very strange to see an elision of all class politics being rewritten under the moniker of racism by two multimillionaires. I think Oprah is perhaps even a billionaire at this point. And that's the incident of not seeing the forest for the trees by the left. So one of my readers wrote me and was so frustrated about this and said, that race is an issue, but talking about Duchess Meghan's sad little life at the castle is not going to fix it, nor is calling every white person a racist. But this took some cultural and social cachet in the UK. People were getting on board on either side of this debate. And it strikes me as being incredibly myopic regarding where we are in a world where millions of people have no money to buy food. This is the reality. And I'm talking about Western countries. There are people lining up to food banks and food banks are running out of food. So how is it even possible that the left cannot concede that it's wrong, not only on issues of identity politics, it's wrong by using the identity politics as like a human shield, avoiding quite obviously, any discussion of material needs. This is what annoys me, I'm from the left and I'm not seeing a left in sight.
1: Oh, I mean, I I just agree with you. I, 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 this is difficult because I disagree with what you've just said. I I think that um, when I you have referred that I haven't hardly talked about it at all. You have constantly referred um, in this interview and rightly so, I think, to the fact that the context of our conversation even is lockdown, you know, is a period in which economic product, productive life has been suspended in all Western countries. We've been forced to stay at home, atomized. Um, any sense of collective now undermined. And even if you are receiving government furlough in the UK, that means a fifth of your uh, a fifth of your income has been uh, has gone away millions of people who are self-employed have had no financial assistance at all and most people are facing economic impoverishment we might well have a kind of economic we might well have armageddon around the corner in terms of jobs and you know the the kind of the react you know we've had our freedoms regardless of what you think about covid or how it's been handled The reality is, is that freedom has been suspended. The government has taken all power onto itself. There's no democratic accountability. And people are facing an economic period of great uncertainty and impoverishment. And many people, as you have rightly pointed out, are poor already. And in the midst of that, we have the Meghan Markle situation in which the left sided with Meghan Markle. And I, I couldn't. Get my, I mean, and it wasn't a question of, like, whose side are you on? Are you on the side of Meghan Markle as the oppressed versus the Queen as the oppressor or what have you, or the royal family, the firm, being the racist and poor old Meghan Markle? I just couldn't get over the parody of the fact that that was the choice presented. I mean, say I'm on neither side. I mean, what are you talking about? Why should that, in the middle of a pandemic, which the response is this lockdown where freedom's taken away and all the things I've just said... I don't want to have to make this the political hill that I die on. And that's the way it became. So I do think that identity has had an incredibly damaging impact on uh, the way that we understand uh, social relations, economic realities. And to go back to that race commission report yesterday, one of the, the, the refreshing aspects of the report is that it does int- reintroduce class and economic material reality into the discussion as a possibly important explanation for why disparities around uh, uh, equality exist. And the idea that the left would then say that proves it's a racist report that doesn't understand anything will indicate that the left have long abandoned now notions that class matter. And it's therefore depressing and it becomes a kind of real, I don't know, a kind of middle-class you know, I mean identity politics is, is is the kind of me, me, me victimhood of people who really seem as far as I concerned, you know, don't have don't face political oppression, but what but want to be in on the act because victimhood has been valorized in society as a way of gaining sympathy. Not what you've achieved, but who you are. I am a victim, look how much I've suffered is going to be better regarded than if you say I am you know I am defined by my ideas by the books I read by who I become in the world rather always to present yourself as suffering and look at my scars and this is how much I need you to sympathize with me look after me and so on and I think that has become what politics is and it's a real problem for me I think that one of the most I mean I would say this because I'm the director of the Academy of Ideas, but I do actually think that ideas matter. And the emperor is wearing no clothes in many instances. And we have to say that, you know, it's by naming things. It's by, you know, it's by interviews like this. But, you know, it's like by discussing, describing what's going on. Too often, what's really happening is sidelined by dominant narratives. And you just don't hear um, the arguments and the ideas sufficiently, um, you are, we aren't amplifying each other's voices who are really trying to reveal this. And that's what needs to happen. I mean, I do genuinely think that, uh, as I say, that, that there's a smallish organized group of, of activists around all of these issues who are the dominant voices. But that doesn't mean that they've convinced the hearts and minds of the majority of people in society. I think that's a very important thing to remember. You know, people might be fearful of speaking out because they don't want to be dubbed, uh, you know, labeled with some derogatory term. But that doesn't mean that they've bought into all this stuff. People might be quiet at work about the Stonewall champion, but it doesn't mean that they are enthusiastic supporters of Stonewall champions. And one of the things which people who insist on, you know, a kind of um, cancelling anyone who disagrees with them and uh, you know, ensuring that they win any argument by making sure that their opponents are just silenced in some way or deplatformed, is that they actually are not used to winning arguments. They're not used to engaging with arguments and discussion because they're used to, uh, in, a, in with a great sense of entitlement, asserting they are right, demanding that anyone who disagrees with them is cancelled and just, therefore, never having to test their arguments. So that is the dominant... You know, group of people who are, who are who are dominant in politics in the U.S. as well as in the U.K. in in the Western world in in many regards, and therefore I think we've got to rise to the challenge of saying, "Come on, debate us, then," because I think that we'll win the debates because they're not used to having them. You know, we can't be silenced. We have to give voice to uh, those people who haven't. You know, I, I'm in a position of great privilege, and I have a platform, and when I uh, can I use it and try and as much as possible say the emperor's got no clothes on and reveal the thin paucity of the arguments that are being used the uh, lack of evidence the lack of any depth to remind people of what class politics is because class politics isn't just some identity thing where you go oh, I'm from a working class background which I could play that game it's all very tempting and we should ensure that Class is not just yet another identity gets thrown in, but the people understand historically there's centuries of, 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 um, uh, political science and uh, uh, philosophy behind these concepts and really bring them to the fore, you know, so we at the Academy of Ideas, we have just started bringing out this new series called Letters on Liberty, which is forcing ourselves to uh, pamphleteer, to write short essays that remake the case for all different aspects of freedom we put on the battle of ideas festival when when the pandemic allows uh, you know which is a big international festival at which people come together and we argue it's a battle of ideas we have hundreds of speakers thousands of attendees and really bring political debate to life now that's i mean the, it, the academy of ideas is a small little um you know uh, but it's a it's a modest contribution but i do think that there are that's what we all need to be doing in our own ways and, and one way or another i think you can create a cacophony and you can create something of a backlash you can really kind of maybe people go yes do you know what i really am fed up with this i'm going to speak out i'm brave. I'm, I'm seeing other people do it i can I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it myself i think that's what will change things it's going to be a struggle by the way but it's not at all impossible this is not the, this status quo is not permanent And those who believe that they can only hold on to power by banning everyone else show their weakness, that they they don't really believe in what they're doing. They haven't convinced anyone else to agree with them. They're just clinging on through bureaucratic, censorious ways, means. And I think if we start having the arguments, we'll win them.